This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for October 19th, 2018. In this week's episode, we continue our explanation on the use of digital certificates, how they work, how they're assigned, and how they can be exploited. Plus, Apple opens up its collected data cache to more users. Facebook adjusts its estimation on how many users were affected by its recent data breach. And a caution to law enforcement about even looking at an iPhone. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. Josh, have you ever wondered how much data Apple has about you? Apple specifically, yeah, I, I guess I've been curious about it. I, I'm, I'm more concerned about the amount of data that companies like Google have about me. But Apple, yeah, it, it would be good to know. Well, Apple has your purchase history of, of music and movies and things like that. They have information about messages you've sent. They've got your photos. They've got, well, assuming you use all the iCloud services, they have a lot about you. Some months ago, Apple introduced a feature where anyone in Europe could download all the data that Apple has regarding them, everything connected to your Apple ID. And this was done in Europe because of GDPR. We talked about this a few months ago, the new data protection regulations. This week, Apple has extended that to the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. I bet right after this podcast, you're going to go start downloading your data, aren't you? Yeah, I'm definitely curious. If only to out see. of curiosity. <laughs> exactly. That for me, that's what it is. Because you know, I I think I have a pretty good idea of what information Apple has about me. But it would be useful to see what exactly they have, and and you know, maybe there will be something in there that might surprise me. Yeah, I did it a few months ago when it became available here in Europe, and I wasn't surprised. Much of it was banal data, uh, and I don't even remember all of it. It was so banal. It was things that were. It didn't really, it didn't have like a messages history. It didn't have, because they tell you how to download certain things. So if you want your photos, they tell you to download it in the Photos app or from the iCloud.com website. They tell you how to download your purchased music and all that. But the rest of the data they had just really wasn't that impressive. And I guess that's what we want, isn't it? Well, right. It would be very concerning if they had things like your Safari browser history right. and, and other things that you can see when you log into your Google account. Okay, so you'll report back if you find anything interesting. Another week, another Facebook data breach. Facebook had an interesting article with the very pithy title, An Update on the Security Issue. That seems a bit disingenuous without, you know, saying, well... Here's an update on the thing where 30 million people's accounts may have gotten hacked, or here's an update on the big mistake we made about people's accounts. You have to give them credit. They have been working around the clock to investigate the security issue they discovered and fixed two weeks ago so they can help people understand what information the attackers may have accessed. Today, they are sharing details about the attack they've found that exploited this vulnerability. They have not ruled out the possibility of smaller-scale attacks, which they're continuing to investigate. What's the word for, like, heaps of obfuscation in press releases because there's a lot of obfuscation in this press release. Well, I mean, you know, that's that's kind of typical PR stuff. They're trying to make it not sound as bad as some might perceive it to be, right? But yeah, I mean, when when you're trying to make it not such a big deal that 30 million people were affected by a you know, a security issue. 30 million. Uh, granted, that's not close to the total amount of people that Facebook has as, as active users, 
but still 30 million people. Right, a billion or whatever. That's half the population of the United Kingdom. That's, I don't know what the population of California is, but it's getting pretty close. It's, it's, it's a lot of people. I mean, really it is. And of course, we're talking, I don't know if we mentioned, we're talking about the, the view as issue that we mentioned uh, previously on the podcast, where somebody could spoof your profile and see what things looked like not, not just what they looked like, that's the intention of the feature, but actually have access to your account in, instead of just seeing what you see. Yes, but, but as Facebook says, of the 50 million people whose access tokens we believe were affected, about 30 million actually had their tokens stolen, actually in italics in the Facebook article. I'll link to that in the show notes. Have we gotten to the point where this happens so often that people just don't care anymore and they don't react too much? I would think that 30 million accounts being potentially hacked, and, and let's be fair, we don't know that they were all hacked, I would think this should lead to some sort of investigation, you know, congressional hearings or or something. But this happens all the time now. Have we reached, have we passed that saturation point? And, and is it now just like, this is just, you know, the cost of doing business? Well, I hope we haven't passed that point <laughs> because this is something that should be investigated. This was probably really mainly caused by some programming errors but for a mistake this big to have happened and for it to have taken this long to discover it, especially for a big company like Facebook, it's, um, you know, that's really bad news. Uh, and, and they should have been auditing things sooner and, and found this a lot quicker before, you know, it had been out there as long as it had been. Just in passing, and this isn't really a security issue, but it turns out that Facebook has inflated the statistics about how many people were watching videos exaggerating by 60 to 80 percent. This isn't so much a security thing, but this has had a big effect on journalism as a lot of publications decided to, air quotes, pivot to video because they were thinking that everyone was watching these videos that they were putting on Facebook. And they fired a lot of journalists and hired video producers and found no one was watching the videos and then fired them. Initially, Facebook was talking about 60 to 80 percent, but now it's turned out that this could be 150 to 900 percent. In other words, if they said that 900 people watched the video, only 100 people really watched it. Now, two things. One is this affected the way publications decided to present information, news, either in video rather than text. But this is also a scam on advertisers who were paying for up to nine times as many eyes. And this was because of the length of time that someone had watched a video, right? Because as, as people are scrolling through their Facebook feed, a video might start to autoplay for a few seconds. And then if people just keep scrolling, well, they're not really watching the video. It may have started playing for a few seconds, but that, does that really count as a view? Exactly. In other news, police have been told to not look at iPhone screens. And it's kind of strange when you think about it. But with Face ID, if you pick up a perpetrator's phone and you look at it, the face ID is going to attempt to unlock it. And when you get to a certain number of times of failed unlocking attempts, it will lock the phone completely. So cops are being told, don't look at phones. I guess they're going to have to turn them over, put them in bags or something. Yeah, this is sort of funny to me, just like thinking about logistically how this would work, right? As a cop is approaching a car, <laughs> like what what are they what kind of tricks are they going to have to do to to keep their face from you know directly facing where somebody might might be holding up their face ID device you know and and as you're approaching the the car you know as, as a cop what if somebody in the car is holding out their phone you know like aiming it at your face 
<laughs> you know, to try to uh, to hit that number of unlocks. Of course, if they're smart, if they if they really know what they're doing, they're going to activate the mode that we've talked about before, where it turns off Face ID, and so then a, a cop or anybody is not going to be able to get in using Face ID anyway. I'm interested to see if this shows up in the next Tom Cruise movie, where Tom Cruise has to get into an iPhone but he comes into this room and the iPhone's sitting there face up on a desk and he has to like hide himself to be able to pick it up and, and slip it into a glove or something to take it back to the, the, the special forensic unit. Or this could be like the Tom Cruise version of that movie Face Off, you know, where he's going to... That's right, where they changed face... Ooh, that's... I hadn't... I forgot about that. It was Nicolas Cage and who else? John Travolta. So if Nicolas Cage gets John Travolta's phone, then he gets a face transplant, he can unlock John Travolta's phone. <laughs> yep, yep. There you go. <laughs> Problem solved. A Apple should get Nicolas Cage and John Travolta to, to, to do a Face ID commercial. That would be, <laughs> that would actually be quite clever. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about certificates. In last week's episodes, we said we were going to give more information about how certificates that verify the identity of web servers and websites work. And Josh has done a lot of homework and research, and we're going to give you all the nitty gritty about certificates. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Indigo's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Indigo's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save 50%. That's Intego Podcast to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. In last week's episode, we answered a question from Derek R., who had sent in a question for our 50th episode contest, and he won a great prize, a year's subscription to Intego Software. His question was, how do digital certificates work when verifying a host identity, such as a website or the publisher of an installation program? And we gave a brief overview of it last week, but realized that it would make more sense for us to make this the main topic of an episode. So this week, we're going to talk about certificates. What are they? How do they work? How do you get one? Are they really secure? Josh, let's start. What exactly is a certificate? It's not a piece of paper, is it? No, this we're talking about digital certificates that can be used to sign code to establish a secure connection with the website. And that's the part that we talked a little bit about last week. We talked about how if you have a digital certificate for your website, you can use HTTPS, the secure version of the web protocol. So HTTPS makes sure that you have a secure connection between your browser and the server that you're connected to. 
And so Derek R. had this question about how do digital certificates work when verifying a host identity? And what we started to discuss last week was that it's not really as much about verifying the identity of the server that you're connected to. When you're talking about connecting to a website, it has more to do with making sure that there's a secure connection between your browser and that server. But it doesn't necessarily validate the identity of that server. It doesn't say for sure that, for example, this is apple.com that you're connected to. Okay, so when we're talking about a secure connection, what we mean is that your data is being sent encrypted to the web server, and that even if someone manages to get a hold of that data in between what we call a man-in-the-middle attack, all they'll get is gobbledygook. So how do you know that you're really connected to apple.com? Well, that's a little bit trickier. This is the kind of thing that, again, if there is a man in the middle, there could be somebody who's actually pretending to be apple.com. Maybe they've done something like poison your DNS in your environment. DNS is the technology that allows resolution of something like apple.com into the IP address of a server that's on the internet. The numerical IP address, because the base addresses of all web servers are just a series of numbers. So if you want to look up apple.com, then you've got to send that query to a DNS service. And so if somebody has hijacked your DNS then they can pretend that they're apple.com. Basically, they just swap in their own malicious server's IP address instead of the actual IP address of apple.com. Right. So that would be like if Tom Cruise gets a hold of the phone book you're going to use and puts whiteout over all the phone numbers and writes different phone numbers for everyone you want to call. If Tom Cruise prints his own phone book and changes just that one little section. That's a good point, but he'd have to know what number you're going to look up. But of course he would, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would okay. because he's Tom Cruise. So, <laughs> but exactly, that's that's how DNS... Tom, if you're listening, this is all meant in with good fun. So Now, if somebody had a fake server that was pretending to be apple.com, what could they do? Well, they could use a certificate to make sure that you had that little you know, lock icon in your uh, address bar in your browser to show that you have a secure connection between your browser and what your browser thinks is apple.com. They don't actually have to have Apple's, that is Apple Inc.'s official certificate. They just need to have a certificate and your browser will be none the wiser. And since it's so easy to duplicate a website, basically you just copy the code from web pages and you could put your own fake Apple website on a server, you could trick people into, for example, ordering the new iPhone XR, which is coming out today, on a fake server putting credit card information in. You'd confirm their orders, you'd send them fake emails saying we're processing your order and they'd be taking your credit card number and buying Bitcoin and moving to the Cayman Islands. And, and, and you know what? It, you don't even necessarily have to... Uh, I thought you were going to say you don't have to move to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> you can stay wherever you want. Yeah, no, that's true too. I was going to say you don't necessarily even have to be doing a DNS spoof attack. So, for example, if you had a lookalike domain, you could have... And, and of course, Apple owns Apple.co, but... Just as an example, if, if Apple didn't own that domain and somebody registered that domain, apple.co, they could also put a digital certificate on that, too. And then they wouldn't have to do any DNS spoofing. They just have to get you to pay attention to the contents of the page rather than what's in the address bar. Because most people don't look at the address bar anyway, do they? Yeah, not not, not as much as you might think that they should. 
people just but, but, but it's only people with our our paranoia about security who think to look at the address bar ever yeah but so here's an interesting point i'm going to plug one of my other podcasts briefly for this point uh, i do a photography podcast called photoactive and we registered the domain name is photoactive.co photoactive.co because we couldn't afford the m the dot com was like seventy five hundred dollars the dot co was like twenty dollars so someone could eventually and because it, it's a domain that's available someone's trying to sell at a high price and someone could actually pretend to be my podcast website using photoactive.com that's right yeah now i don't think they'd go to that trouble but that that is a, an interesting point you know if you look at a domain registrar there are literally hundreds of top level domains you can register these days and I think most average users don't think there's anything other than, let's say, .com, .org, .edu, or whatever the code is in your country. So in the UK, it's .co.uk. In France, it's .fr, et cetera. Most people wouldn't be surprised if they came across, let's say, photoactive.photography, because that actually exists, the photography top-level domain. These are all ways that somebody could pretend to be a website, even though they have a digital certificate. So... So just having a certificate does not prove that you're connected to that site that you think you're connected to. Okay. I want to just go back to one of the basics here. What exactly is the certificate? I assume it's a bunch of characters, letters and numbers that are stored somewhere, but how does that actually work? There's some validation going on here behind the scenes. In fact, if you're if you have a Mac, you can go into your Keychain Access app and you can go to system roots on the left side there and you can see a list of certificate authorities now these are the companies that issue certificates for use for a website or or other purposes and so normally if you go to wikipedia for example and you take a look at what certificate authority they're using you'll find that certificate authority in this list of system roots in your keychain access app. So the web browser makes a comparison with the website and what's on your system. It validates that the certificate that that website is using comes from a trusted certificate authority. Got it. And, and it verifies that your certificate is not expired as well. And that is really just a simple matter of checking against the date and time on your computer. Okay, so we've got a certificate, but you've said that it's kind of easy to spoof it and to make people think it's something else, you know, apple.co or or I don't know, apple.computer. People could have something like that. So is there any extra level of protection to make sure that we really know that it's really, really Apple? Well, I, I think you're thinking of extended validation, which we started talking about last week. Right. That's a, a technology, I guess it's it's tacked on to the idea of getting a certificate for your website. This is a way that those certificate authorities can further kind of do some behind the scenes investigative work to make sure that you are who you say you are before issuing you that certificate. It tends to cost a little more and there's more of an involved process because they sort of, uh, do some validation of your actual address and things like that to make sure that you are really who you claim to be. Right. According to Wikipedia, only certificate authorities who pass an independent qualified audit review may offer extended validation certificates. And there, there is a question of insurance that's available with a certificate. And these certificates have to 
establish the legal identity as well as the operational and physical presence of the web owners. So Apple has to prove that they're Apple somehow. Establish that the applicant is the domain name or has control over the domain name. And there are many cases where a web hosting company may run websites for a lot of clients and manage the certificates. So they would have to prove they have the right to do that. But they also have to confirm the identity and authority of the individuals acting for the website owner. And they have to have documents about legal obligations that are signed and all that. So it is a it is a more complex approach. I got a certificate for my own website by clicking three little buttons on my web hosting company and paying them 10 bucks. Now that doesn't prove anything because you could go sign up there and get your certificate even if you haven't been with that hosting company for any length of time. But the extended validation does have this additional check. However, is it really foolproof? As well, it's not foolproof. I mean, it is it is something, but <laughs> it's possible. I, I remember hearing a, a report about a security researcher who was kind of investigating this whole extended validation process. And I don't remember what particular company it was that he was spoofing, but he was able to get extended validation certificates for a domain that was very similar to, it might have been a banking website or something like that, and that actually showed in the address bar a name that looked very similar to the name of that company that he was you know, ostensibly spoofing with his uh, proof of concept site. Well, there are companies that have been around for decades and even centuries before the internet. I'm sure that there is someone in Scotland with a company called McDonald's, both with an MC or even with an MAC, which is spelled differently than the hamburger company, would you be able to prevent them from using their name for a certificate, for a domain, for a website? I don't think so. One important thing is the whole trademark issue. Apple Computer has trademarks in that cover a lot of classes. A class is the type of products you're selling. So you might want to have a trademark for hamburgers and, and, and food. You might want to have a trademark for books and things like that. And Apple has trademarks for a long time for computing but they didn't have trademarks to sell and distribute music. So they had to negotiate with Apple Records, which was the Beatles record company. And I think they had to give them a lot of money to be able to use the Apple name regarding music because Apple Records owned the trademark. So it's entirely possible that there are companies with similar names that have trademarks in different classes. You know, McDonald's Haggis, for instance, in Scotland, as, as, <laughs> yep. as opposed to a company selling hamburgers. So... It isn't that hard to spoof a name, particularly if it's a simple name like that, a family name, as opposed to, say, an abbreviation or, you know, something like Facebook, it would be harder. Something like Google, it would be harder. Right, exactly. Yeah, Apple, if you think about it, I mean, that's that's just a dictionary word. It's so... It's a fruit. And there's lots of companies that have Apple in their name. You could be Apple LLC, Apple Limited, any number of possibilities there. Yet you're right. Facebook and Google would be a little bit harder because those are... Especially Google is just a made-up word. It's not. It's not the the numerical Google. It's spelled differently. So right. It's it's a different spelling. What I find interesting is that I'm looking at Facebook and they're not using an extended validation certificate. Google's not using an extended validation certificate. So why do these companies not think it's important? That's a great question. I mean, when you're a big company like that, you would think that you would want to use extended validation to prove who you are. Exactly. Uh, Wikipedia also doesn't use extended validation. Yeah, and that's actually interesting because Wikipedia presents itself as a sort of authority. And if anyone was able to spoof Wikipedia, that could have important repercussions. As I said earlier, it cost me 10 bucks to get an HTTPS certificate for my website. You can even get free HTTPS certificates from, what is it, letsencrypt.org, 
My web hosting company won't let you use those because they make money selling their own certificates, but a lot of people do. Many times we've talked about the security of HTTPS, but from what you're saying, all it does is guarantee that the data is not going to be sent in clear. It really doesn't do much else. In terms of, yeah, verifying the identity of who you're connected to. That's that, that's true. Right. Um, I mean, to, on some level, yeah, maybe it does. But you can't really rely on that as establishing the identity of, who you're, of the site that you're connected to. Right. And that was Derek's question, basically, how does it work when verifying an identity? But there is a question he asks, he says, such as a website or the publisher of an installation program. And I think that's actually quite interesting. If you look at the Keychain Access app, which is in your application's utilities folder, you'll see that Apple has their own certificates, both standard root certificates and developer certificates. That's a lot more secure because you can't spoof an app that you've gotten from the Mac App Store. Right. If if you want your operating system to believe that that app really came from the Mac App Store, it has to be signed by that Apple certificate authority. And you can't have something that comes from the Mac App Store <laughs> that is not signed by the Apple Roots uh, certificates. So that's a really good point. It's there's a very clear distinction here because Apple has a closed you know ecosystem, a walled garden. It's very different from the wild west of certificate authorities for validating websites. You can guarantee that somebody has an Apple developer ID because it's going to have to be signed by that Apple root certificate. Now, it is possible for a developer with malicious intent to get an Apple certificate. That's a possibility. And in fact, it has happened. It's also happened that uh, legitimate developers have had their accounts compromised, and then their signature has been used on malicious apps. Both of those things are still possible, but at least you know that it came from an Apple developer, someone who actually has a developer account with Apple. So no matter what, this is not foolproof. It's not 100% secure. Our data is protected. And, and I guess we should tell people, don't be worried when you're sending your credit card data over the internet if you see that little padlock. But you better make sure that it's the right website and not someone pretending to be Amazon.com, which would be kind of difficult. I think this is one of the reasons why Apple has developed Apple Pay and other companies are doing similar things because in in that sort of payment scenario your your actual credit card information is not being transmitted it's a one-time token which is connected to a transaction on multiple levels so your 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 personal information can't get hijacked the worst that can happen is that the transaction fails because the communication was dishonest or something. There's a lot of layers to this. It's not, it's not really a, a simple answer, uh, you know, like you might expect. But um, it is good to know that there are technologies that make it easier to have secure purchasing transactions on the internet and other secure transactions as well. Just communicating with a website, you can know that you have an established secure connection between point A and point B. That's a good thing. Okay, I think for our listeners who don't pay attention to the address bars in their browsers, you might want to start doing that just for a little bit, just to see what you see. See how many of the websites you visit do have those little padlocks. See which ones have the extended validation certificate. When you see that, you see the company name in green before you see the actual website address. Have a look at that. If you have any questions about this, send them in. We know it's a complicated topic, 
as Josh said, there are many layers to this, but uh, I, I hope this all made sense and that you all understand a little bit more about certificates. Thanks again, Derek, for your question. And Josh, until next week, stay extra secure. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com. <laughs>